Hello and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills podcast. I'm Greg Rowan and I'm a partner in the disputes team in London. I'm also one of the general editors of our textbook, Class Actions in England and Wales, published by Sweet and Maxwell. I have with me Neil Blake, who's also a London disputes partner and is one of the authors of the textbook. This is the third of our series of podcasts to mark the launch of the second edition of the book. And in this episode, we'll be focusing on environmental and human rights based group actions, or you might say ESG group actions, which we think is an area that will continue to give rise to significant risks for businesses. To start off by giving some context, Neil, could you please explain what broad sorts of environmental and human rights based claims tend to be brought in the English courts at the moment? Sure. Environmental and human rights-based claims can obviously cover a broad spectrum of litigation, uh, particularly including climate change, which is an area of some focus at the moment and seems likely to develop in the future. Uh, And maybe we can come back to that later on. But principally, we tend to use uh, the term environmental litigation to cover claims relating to pollution, whether that's a one-off event or a continuing event, such as will be a nuisance from the perspective of English law. And when we talk about human rights claims, there's often a crossover between the two, and they are typically brought in the tort of negligence arising out of some violation of the claimant's human rights. Though the term could obviously include claims brought against public authorities under the Human Rights Act as well. These claims can be international or purely domestic, and uh, where they have been international in in recent times, uh, they've often been uh, in the form of claims brought against UK parent companies uh, in respect of the acts or omissions uh, of their subsidiaries overseas. And our Supreme Court has shown itself uh, uh, sympathetic to the arguments that such claims ought to be brought in the UK and has dismissed jurisdictional challenges in a number of these claims such as give rise to a particular litigation risk for multinational groups headquartered in the UK. Thanks, Neil, for that overview. Our main focus for today is on the last of the categories that you mentioned there, involving claims against parent companies for the acts or indeed the emissions of their subsidiaries abroad. Uh, We sometimes call those types of claims uh, transnational tort claims, Um, And we'll come back uh, to talk a little bit about climate change litigation at the end. Um, Listeners might be wondering how these claims against parent companies square with the well-established doctrine of separate corporate personality, which is obviously a fundamental principle of English law. Um, It'd be great if you could speak to that, Neil. Thanks, Greg. I've asked that question a lot as to whether what we're doing here is uh, piercing the corporate veil and that is not what is going on. What is happening is that it is simply that the parent company is being held to owe a duty of care to people uh, affected by the acts or omissions of the subsidiary. And that is not a particularly novel proposition in English law. And indeed, it was held in a case called uh, Home Office and Dorset Yacht, that that was a principle whereby, uh, in that case, uh, Borstal Boys Uh, went off on a frolic in uh, the harbour and damaged a yacht and it was held that the degree of control that ought to have been exercised uh, by the Home Office over those Borstal boys was such as to give rise to a duty of care. Um, That same principle has been mapped into a corporate context uh, more recently in a case of Chandler and Cape uh, where it was held that a company could uh, owe a duty of care to the employees of its subsidiary Um, and then it is but a short increment from that to hold that a parent company could owe a duty of care uh, to the third parties affected by the acts or omissions of that subsidiary. 
and, and the key question that our corporate clients um, often ask us is precisely when will a parent company be found to owe a duty of care of, 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 of the sort you um, described there? Can you just talk us through how the courts have approached that question? Yes, we've had um, two jurisdictional challenges in the English court uh, in recent times that went all the way through to the Supreme Court, uh, which considered this very issue. Uh, those were Lungoe and Vedanta and Okpabi and Shell, both of which were concerned with environmental damage, uh, respectively in Zambia and Nigeria, um, connected with uh, extractive activities. What we haven't yet had in the English courts is a definitive determination of uh, a, a duty of care being held to be owed by a parent company. Uh, uh, in respect of the acts or omissions of the subsidiary. It's only been held so far that in principle, uh, such a duty of care is at least arguable. And, and Neil, perhaps you could explain why it is that the English courts are seen as being attractive for, for these sorts of claims. Um, in, in many cases, you might say that the obvious forum will be the courts of the local subsidiary, yet they, the claims continue to wash up here in, in England. Yeah, there are a few factors that, that contribute to the, to the popularity of these claims being brought in the English courts. Firstly, there are a number of um, well-resourced uh, uh, claimant firms in this jurisdiction uh, that are uh, inclined to bring such claims. Um, we also have a well-developed and relatively permissive regime for litigation funding, which uh, where you have impecunious claimants, as you often do in these cases, can be quite important. Um, thirdly, uh, you go where the money is often, and it is in this jurisdiction that many uh, parent companies are located, uh, and therefore it is seen as advantageous to bring proceedings directly here if you can. Uh, and finally, there are some jurisdictions uh, where subsidiaries operate, where there are some concerns as to the integrity uh, or, or other issues uh, of the local courts, which might militate against uh, bringing claims in those jurisdictions where it's possible to do so. And, and Neil, how easy is it to resist the English courts taking jurisdiction over th th this sort of claim? Uh, hitherto, it's been really very difficult indeed for a defendant, particularly because whether or not uh, a parent company duty of care is owed is super fact sensitive. Uh, and the court has made very clear that it is not prepared to, to hold a mini trial on the issue at a jurisdictional stage. Um, that said, in light of the fact that we are no longer members of the EU and the relevant jurisdictional uh, rules no longer apply, there is a glimmer of hope for defendants in that it is now open to the English court to stay in action where it considers that another forum is more appropriate, uh, which was not previously the case. Um, so now the court can assess whether there's another forum that's more closely connected with the claim than England and Wales, or which is more suitable for the claim to be heard. However, there are couple of potential complications uh, in that respect. First, even if the English court considers that there's another forum that's more appropriate, it will allow the claim to proceed in England in any event if it considers that the parties could not obtain substantial justice in that foreign forum, for example, because of the risk of judicial corruption or, or less dramatic factors, such as the lack of available uh, suitable uh, legal representation or, or expert uh, evidence. Uh, secondly, uh, if the parent company is arguing that the claim should be heard not in England but in a the subsidiary jurisdiction, um, the parent company is likely to have to submit to the jurisdiction of the courts in which the relevant subsidiary is located uh, as the price of not having the claim heard in England, and it may not wish to do so 
um, if there are concerns uh, about the, 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 the court uh, in that other country. You touched earlier on some of the high profile cases that we've seen in this space. Could you tell us our listeners a bit more about them? Yeah, we've seen two uh, cases that went to the Supreme Court here. Um, firstly, Lungoya and Vedanta, uh, in which this firm acted, uh, where there was a group of uh, over 3,000 Zambian citizens who brought proceedings against Vedanta Resources, PLC as it was, uh, which was incorporated and listed in the UK, uh, and its Zambian subsidiary, which owned a copper mine uh, in Zambia. And the claims there alleged to uh, related to alleged environmental pollution uh, said to have been caused by the mine. Um, in Octavian Shell, uh, there were two group actions brought again by many tens of thousands of people in respect of two different areas of Nigeria, where it was said that pollution had been caused uh, by leaks from oil pipelines and its associated infrastructure. Uh, the actions were brought against Royal Dutch Shell PLC, which is incorporated in England, and a Nigerian joint venture operated by a Shell subsidiary in Nigeria. And in both those cases, the Supreme Court said that the duty of care was arguable. Uh, such that the claims could proceed, uh, although the Vedanta case has since settled. Um, there are other major claims that we've seen that fall into this category, in particular ones relating to the construction of an oil pipeline into Colombia, um, fly tipping of, of oil waste products in the Ivory Coast, and other uh, matters relating to assault and personal injury in the context of Malawi. Uh, and there's also uh, some pretty uh, prominent litigation going on in English courts at the moment arising out of the collapse of the Fundau Dam. Neil, you mentioned the challenges that defendants face in seeing these claims off at the jurisdiction stage and uh, in particular in trying to establish uh, at that stage that there's no arguable duty of care. Um, though, as you said, um, there may be some scope for challenging jurisdiction on the basis that the claim should be heard in the local forum. Um, where these claims do proceed in the English courts, um, what other challenges do they pose for defendants? Um, firstly, these cases can be immensely uh, expensive to fight uh, because of the very fact-sensitive nature of the question of whether a duty of care is owed. And also, liability in quantum will often depend on uh, many uh, different types of expert evidence. Um, also, defendants, I think, have in mind the fact that the, the nature of these claims is such that they are liable to be brought by impecunious claimants, uh, with the result that, absent a litigation funder, a successful defendant will not recover its costs, whatever the outcome. Um, clearly, where there is a third-party litigation funder, that, that person could be pursued uh, for costs in the event of successful defence. But even then, um, where the claims are uh, comprise or, or involve allegations of personal injury, we have a qualified one-way cost-shifting system here, which will prevent often a successful defendant of a personal injury claim recovering its costs in any event. And so uh, that constellation of factors means there's often a fine balance for the defendant as to whether it should fight the case or simply take a commercial view uh, that if a number can be agreed uh, to compromise it, uh, that ought to be done. And then turning to, to trial and the likely merits at trial where a defendant does choose to fight the case rather than settle. Uh, the question of whether a duty of care is owed um, has been found to be highly fact dependent, as you've said. But in the decisions at the jurisdictional stage, the courts have given some clues as to the sorts of factors that can be taken into account in addressing the, the question. Uh, can you give us a flavour of what those are? 
It seems from the discussion in the case law today that the court will look very closely at the day-to-day interactions of the parent company and the subsidiary, uh, looking in particular, particular at such factors as whether the parent has taken over the management or joint management of a relevant activity of the subsidiary. Uh, secondly, whether the parent has provided defective advice or promulgated defective group-wide safety or environmental policies, uh, which were implemented by the subsidiary um, and which might have contributed to the damage alleged in the case in question. Um, thirdly, uh, the question will be whether the parent has promulgated group-wide policies and taken active steps to ensure their implementation within the subsidiary. Uh, and fourthly, uh, another consideration will be whether the parent has held itself out in corporate literature as exercising a particular degree of supervision and control over the subsidiary in respect of the matters in question. Uh, that isn't by any means a definitive list, um, but it does identify some of the important issues for, for corporates to consider in this context. So following on from that then, what can companies do to manage the risks that they're facing with, with these claims? I think in in any particular business, it's about thinking very carefully about the areas in which uh, claims are likely to arise and making sure that the legal team has sufficient oversight of and input into the formulation and drafting of policy in those areas. Um, for example, there may be a separate team uh, preparing human rights and community engagement policies, but it's important that the team has visibility uh, and input, in, input into the drafting process. Um, a second issue to have in mind as to, is as to what are the uh, corporate governance processes for the formulation of group policy, uh, its adoption, adaptation and implementation down the corporate chain. So in, in essence, what policies are being made and where are they being made in the group? How are they being implemented? For example, there may be matters uh, that at a group-wide level are so important uh, that a parent company will simply take the view, I'm going to take responsibility for these matters with the risk that I uh, take on a duty of care, but make sure that you discharge the duty of care. Uh, that said, there may be other matters where relevant policymaking can be pushed down to subsidiaries or operating units, as the case may be, and they elaborate and adapt and implement the policy at that local level. Um, but businesses need to think about these things very mindfully and make sure that the corporate governance process is joined up with that process of policy drafting and implementation. Um, finally, one thing to have in mind is what is going out in your corporate literature um, and think very carefully about how that is worded, since in most of the claims we see, um, huge swathes of corporate literature on matters going to the environment, to sustainability and so forth, are pleaded and used as a weapon by a claimant uh, against the corporate uh, whenever litigation arises. Indeed, yes. This is obviously a, um, a, a very fast moving area of law um, and, and we've seen the courts considering in many cases the boundaries of the duty of care that um, the parent companies may owe, um, not only to those affected by the acts of their subsidiaries, um, but in some cases um, acts of other parties where the connection is even more tenuous or indirect. Could you tell us what sort of areas you think are worth watching um, in, in, in this space going forward? Yes, we've seen the this tortious theory of liability um, being stretched in all sorts of ways to bring uh, novel claims before the English courts. Um, firstly, we've had some cases where um, it has been said that a parent company can owe a duty of care in respect of acts 
of third parties who are in some way connected to the subsidiary rather than the actual emissions of the subsidiary itself. Uh, so, for example, there have been um, cases based on alleged abuses by local police forces um, operating the vicinity of a subsidiary's plant, for example. Uh, and in that case, uh, it was held that there was no duty of care owed in those particular circumstances. Um, secondly, supply chain uh, claims are becoming more frequent, uh, where parent companies through supply chain audits and so forth are becoming fixed with knowledge of issues that may arise in their supply chain and in circumstances where they may not even have a contractual nexus with their counterparties uh, in the supply chain. It is being said against them that by virtue of that awareness and perhaps state statements to the world at large, uh, they are have a duty to prevent, for example, child labour or forced labour or prison labour, as the case may be, uh, in the supply chain as a result. Thirdly, there is uh, a separate but related question of whether a business can be liable for disposing of corporate assets, which may be said to give rise to dangers to third parties. Uh, a case before the Court of Appeal the year before last found that the seller of a tanker owed an arguable duty of care to the widow of a man killed in breaking up that tanker in a Bangladeshi shipyard, where the seller knew it was likely to end up being broken up in unsafe conditions. Uh, the court said that it was foreseeable, given the circumstances of the disposal, uh, that harm could be caused to third parties, and it was arguable that this gave rise to a duty to mitigate that danger. And so I think these three examples um, really make clear how theories of tortious liability uh, are giving uh, new areas of litigation risk to corporate defendants in this area. Now, now, so far, we've been talking about essentially the potential for parent company liability relating to or arising out of alleged environmental pollution or human rights abuses um, of their subsidiary companies abroad. And obviously, we've just touched on the possible expansion of that to acts of other third parties or suppliers um, or arising from the sale of dangerous assets, which um, um, you've just mentioned. Another whole area that falls within the umbrella of environmental litigation, um, as, as I touched on at the outset, is of course climate change related litigation. And we've seen claims brought in other jurisdictions by groups of claimants, um, either seeking to force changes in government or corporate policy, um, such as the action brought in the Netherlands to try to force um, Royal Dutch Shell to reduce its CO2 emissions or for damages for alleged economic loss caused by consumer misrepresentation or so-called greenwashing. Uh, for example, in the US where claims have been brought on the basis that essentially that consumers are said to have paid an unfounded green price premium for products that in the end didn't live up to their environmental credentials. Um, turning back to, to, to this market, to England and Wales, what sort of potential do you think these claims have to take hold here? Yeah, climate litigation uh, in the UK is, is relatively undeveloped so far, and it's, it's not easy to see um, which are likely to be the most profitable areas for prospective claimants in the area. Uh, as, you, as you rightly say, Greg, we have had um, a good number of public law claims uh, relating to, for example, challenges to grants of licenses for develop the development of carbon intensive assets such as mines and energy plants and so forth. Um, 
There have in other jurisdictions been claims analogous to the transnational tort claims where people have sought to fix particular corporates with carbon intensive businesses with uh, responsibility for quite specific environmental issues. And those claims have tended not to not to succeed on uh, the basis of, of the difficulty in showing causation and loss uh, in those contexts. Um, more interesting, as you say, I think in this jurisdiction are claims relating to greenwashing uh, and public statements, in particular claims brought by investors, for example, by issuers of securities in respect of their sustainability and climate policies. Um, and recently we've seen a shareholder claim brought by Client Earth uh, against Shell, alleging that its directors are in breach of their duties uh, in how they formulated their energy plan by not divesting of their fossil fuel assets more quickly, um, such as to create a risk of having stranded assets in a, a low carbon future. Um, it seems to me that there are formidable obstacles in the way of that claim and others like it, particularly as the court is required uh, to take into account the views of impartial investors. Um, that said, as a derivative claim, it will require the court's permission to succeed, uh, to proceed uh, to a full trial. And so we'll be watching that very carefully. And I think that will be an interesting indicator as to the future trajectory of climate litigation in this jurisdiction. Very good. That brings us to the end of our podcast. So thanks to you, Neil, and to everyone listening. We'll be back soon with future editions in this series.